Live from Evanston, Illinois, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of Roman innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by progressive writer David Masiotra, conservative lawmaker Jeannie Ives, DePaul University economist Mike Miller, conservative lawyer Judith Sherwin, progressive author Michael Golden, and libertarian talk show host Eric Cohn, along with special guest Rosemary Gibson, author of the new book China Rx. Our program tonight coming to you from our temporary home at WCGO Radio in Evanston, Illinois. It's nice to have you with us this evening. We should mention, by the way, as basically everyone else in the media, they have told that uh, uh, their home studios are under quarantine of some sort. And so that is the case and decision by not only the Museum of Broadcast Communications, where we normally do our show, but also by the governor of the state of Illinois. But again, we are an exempt because we're a journalist, we're an exempt. So we, I, I was able to leave my house today and uh, come together. But again, we wanted to keep everybody uh, separated, uh, certainly by more than six feet. And certainly they are separated by more than six feet this evening. We've got a couple of interesting things. Uh, all of our guests will be join us, uh, joining us either via Skype or by Zoom. We've got three, again, three great guests in the first hour of the show. We have a special guest at 7 o'clock. Her name is uh, Rosemary Gibson. She is author of a new book called China Rx. It's about our dependence on China, our over-dependence on China for our prescription drugs. She will join us uh, at the top of the next hour, and then we will finish up with another panel of three people uh, ending our broadcast this evening. But the phone lines will remain open at 1-800-723-8029. The video appears to be working this evening, so we want to make sure that the phones are working as well. If you have questions, uh, feel free to give us a call. Uh, let me bring in our first three guests. First of all, uh, Jeannie Ives joins us. She she is a conservative Republican. She is a candidate uh, for Congress. She recently uh, won her primary on Tuesday of this week. Uh, she is from uh, Western Illinois or suburban Western Illinois, and she is uh, one of our first guests, along with Mike Miller from DePaul University and David Masiotra. Jeannie, I want to begin with you. First of all, congratulations on your primary win. But at this moment in time, do you think the American people need to hear from the president uh, and the and the uh, coronavirus task force more about what's likely to come next? Absolutely. Uh, president Trump and VP Pence have done a great job of being very open with the American public. Him himself standing at the podium literally for an hour and a half at times, talking to reporters, answering their questions. And in many, case, in many cases, fielding questions from folks that are not as informed as him and want to demonize him rather than be helpful. So I, I think it shows a lot of um, a resolve on his part, a lot of maturity, quite frankly, for him to stand there repeatedly day after day. I know he just got off a press conference, or maybe it's still going on. I was watching it before the show started. Mm -hmm. But coming to you on Sunday nights live and right there in front of you so you can hear firsthand mm -hmm. from the president and all of his experts. So he's done a great job. And this is exactly what political leaders should be doing at this time. David, David Masiotra, let me ask you, uh, you may see his uh, performance a little bit differently, but again, to my core question, uh, do the American people deserve to know what's likely next, even though I think many of them realize that uh, because we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before, we can't perhaps be uh, absolutely sure. 
Well, yeah, of course. And uh, unfortunately, we're not receiving uh, leadership that inspires uh, confidence. What is, it that you, what, that is it that you, what is it that you want that uh, Jeannie Ives already sees? Well, first of all, we need to have the, the president behave presidential. David, what does that mean? I'm not looking to go into a political thing. What is it that you want? I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, there are people who who disagree with you. There are people that uh, disagree with Junie Junie Ives. But my question is, what do we do next? If there's a void in what? leadership, what do we do? We we wait until November to elect the new president, or or as people well, what, die. What happens next is is the the United States Congress needs to get these checks rolling out. They need to get this stimulus package finalized. They need to do it quickly. They're, they're However, delaying do you know what? They're working well, here's on Here's what happened, Bruce. These negotiations. One second. Also, one, one second. One second. I want to go to Mike Miller. We'll come back to everybody so far, but I want to bring Mike Miller from DePaul University. He's an economist. I want to bring him uh, into the conversation, and I want to come back to my basic question. I'm, I'm not looking for a liberal conservative battle tonight, but I do want to hear from you, Mike. Do the American people deserve to know what's next, uh, e- even though the government may not be as specific as some people would like? Yes, that's exactly what they need. And there are two things that are very troubling that could come out of this. And that is uh, two words, uncertainty, and uh, the other one would be a lack of confidence. And both of those are damaging to an economy. So I, I think that the president has been doing a fine job. I'm, uh, and it's not because, I remember, I didn't vote for the guy. I will next time. Uh, but the, uh, what else could he do? I mean, President Obama didn't declare an emergency until 100,000 people had uh, already contracted it and 1,000 people were already dead. So I think he's doing as much as he can do. I think Pence okay, I want to go back. I want to I want to go back to David Masiotro uh, because, again, uh, uh, the, the name of Obama has already been brought up tonight. Uh, but my question to you, I, I'm looking for more specifics, because what you're talking about, David, uh, the House and Senate, uh, they're already they're already working on this. This it's 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 pending in the Senate. Uh, it's it's going to be voted on tomorrow, according to Mitch McConnell. Yes. Bruce, the, yeah. no, the Democrats shut it down. Pelosi shut it down. She shut it down for what reason did she give? She said they want to write their own bill. And what we've heard in Politico has, Politico has reported is that uh, they don't even have the, the text language ready. They just have some sketchy ideas, but they have already said that they're not going to be voting on the Senate, the Senate one. And Senate, uh, there are insufficient senators also to vote for it as well because the Democrats will not take the vote. So there was a procedural move just made just a few minutes before we went on the air that essentially said that they're not going to bring this aid forward. And of course, when you talk to business members like I have, and I've been spending since Thursday and Friday and on talking to folks in the business community that have businesses in the 6th Congressional, they all say they need this aid and they need it within two weeks. David, what is your reaction to uh, what Jeannie just said, that the Democrats appear to be uh, knuckling at the moment? Well, from my understanding, there's some discrepancy about the restrictions attached to the uh, corporate aid. That in, Within the bill, there was $500 billion allotted to corporate aid without oversight, without restrictions. Uh, under normal circumstances, I would say, having learned from TARP and the bank bailouts, 
we cannot provide uh, major multinational companies with uh, massive aid packages without enforcing some restrictions on how they use the money, how they invest the money, on how fast they get it to their workers. The president uh, said however, he supported that the other a, day. We're in a state of crisis right now. This is urgent. So, as I would say... But again, it, David, you know, David, the president, the president said the other day he opposed anyone buying stock, using their money for stock buy- buybacks. I want, I want to get Mike Miller and I want to get everybody else uh, a chance to talk. Again, it's a unique opportunity for us this evening. 1-800-723-8289. We don't have the luxury of all sitting around a comfortable table, but we're all here from coast to coast and border to border sharing our thoughts and opinions and maybe your phone calls. 1-800-723-8289. A new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Welcome back to Sports View. Next topic, is it really all about power? Dumont back uh, on Beyond the Bellway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. I want to go to uh, uh, economist uh, Mike Miller from uh, DePaul University who joins us on our panel tonight. Uh, Mike, are, are you satisfied with the way in which the governors are uh, responding uh, to this crisis? I don't think they have any choice, but I'm very concerned that we're not properly weighing the costs and benefits here. I, you know, we've we've had uh, outbreaks before of of illnesses which have cost us lives and people getting sick, but we've never shut down an economy over it. And I just hope that the uh, cure is not worse than the disease. And I'm I'm not convinced yet that uh, this is the right thing to do. David Masciotra, uh, so- do you agree with that? No, because what you're, I mean, it's certainly a concern, but what you're essentially saying is that uh, we should feel comfortable uh, risking people's lives. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Thousands of people's lives. Uh, we do it every in day in order to cars. protect uh, corporate profits and the efficiency of the economy. And that seems uh, irresponsible, even though I know that your intentions are good yeah, in that I, statement. I, but just think of all the people who who have to live paycheck to paycheck where you just told them so that somebody may not die or may not get sick. You're, you're going to tell millions of these people that they have no income for the next couple of weeks. They may not be able to make their rent payment at the end of the month or their credit card payment or their car payment. a couple payment. of years. I, well, this is a, I think uh, that has to be taken into account before you impose these Genie Ives. Well, it presents a philosophical Okay, I want to, I want Jeannie Ives to weigh in on this. On this particular point, Jeannie, is the, is, is do we have to put a uh, an, an end a stop end on this uh, bailout or these uh, financial plans to save the economy? 
Well, look, first of all, it's not a bailout. This is far different than what we did in 0809. This is a much more severe institute in, instance where literally government is telling businesses you cannot operate. That is not what happened in 0809. They didn't say businesses couldn't operate. And by the way, the big banks that got bailed out in 08, 09, now the best thing that they could do is extend letters of credit to businesses so that they can maintain their employees on their payroll, which is far better than pushing them off to unemployment and off into a food stamp situation or putting them on Obamacare at that point. It's far better to maintain these businesses and get over the hurdle. Now, the good thing that Trump has done is he has avoided the idea that he is going to shut down the entire country. He understands this is a very, in many cases, localized situation. What, over 50% of the cases are happening in three different states. There are vast swaths of the American populace, quite frankly, that are not going to be affected by this in any meaningful way. And in fact, there's, there's a number of people, including my husband, that are going to work every single day. And so, if it, so this virus is going to hopefully run its course, hopefully be contained, but uh, we're not shutting down the whole economy, even under a shutdown in certain, in, in, in Illinois, for example, we're not doing that. And what's really horrible is the fact that you have the Illinois governor go after Donald Trump for not, being, uh, for not, for supplies that he didn't feel Illinois had. But the Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, has not yet said that we've had nine deaths in Illinois. And I know that's horrible. But the last update, when you looked at the COVID statistics that I just looked at before this show started, in Illinois, there was nobody that was that was deemed to be in the hospital. Now, are there people in the hospital? More than likely. But he has not said what specifically, what amounts does he really need? How many beds are, are um, free or not free? How many are occupied by this virus? How many masks do you really need? There's been nothing, no detail at all, just is, attacks on our is, president. Is there, uh, David, back to you. Is there, in your view, confusion uh, to the general public who maybe is watching these briefings not only from the White House and, and Vice President Pence, but they're also ba- watching daily briefings uh, from uh, from governors? And and some of these things are, are different than what the president is saying. Not all. But I'm wondering whether that whether you think there that this is part of a, uh, a confusion that may be out there in in the messaging on this. Yes, yes. Part of it is the result of our entire system of governance, which we're not going to change. We have a federalist system of governance in which we're going to have 51, 50 governors plus the president relaying messages to the American people. That's not going to change. But the White House, and this is strictly from a public relations, public communication standpoint, could improve its performance by, first of all, narrowing down the amount of people who answer questions. It, it adds to the chaos and the confusion to answer by committee, to have five people give an answer to every reporter's question. Also, but David, there are there are some experts there. In other words, I don't want the president weighing in on a scientific matter, and he got himself in trouble this past week when he did on the on the the the, the, the possible medicine that might be available. But I want Dr. Fauci to weigh in. I want Dr. Burks. I think Dr. Burks. I'd like to hear a lot more from her. But some of these people can can address certain things. The, the new head of FEMA uh, can certainly address uh, some of the, yeah. the supply issues. But what what concerns me is like today, uh, the, the governor of Michigan was on. 
Now, she said that everyone in Michigan should have a test. Oh, that's com- that's completely contradictory to what uh, Fauci and Burks and everyone has been saying out of Washington. She said, well, everybody should have a test. I mean, th- 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 that that is, you know, she may be auditioning to be Joe Biden's running mate, but that's a totally irresponsible statement. That's would- not irresponsible, Bruce, because we can... That that statement is a leap too far. But we it do is, know but that here's we a have poli- to have here's a politician. Here's a politician. Exist. Here's a politician Stop. doing. You know, I mean, here you have a situation where the president is. Uh, in this case, in this case, he's on the side of science. And Governor Whitmer, she's out there playing politics. No, but let's let's identify two poles of difference. What you just identified and correctly criticized was a statement of excess. Yes. We, we do know, however, that the Trump administration received warnings from intelligence agencies as early as January about the potential pandemic of coronavirus. Yeah, and then, then they... Action. Simultaneously, Trump told rally goers that it was a hoax perpetuated by the Democrats. It was he didn't a hoax. He, he, he didn't no, say that. He, he didn't say that. He, he didn't say that. He, he said the Democrats Taiwan, were using it as a hoax. Mike now, Miller, uh, just a minute, David... I want to go to Mike Miller because you've said a couple of things that are, they've been reported. They're not locked in. And by the way, I just want to say, there's going to be plenty of time to do, uh, uh, you know, uh, after action reports on this. I mean, there's going to be books written for decades on this. But right at the moment, we should be looking about what can we do next, which I come back to my question. What are we doing next? And when you have a governor saying one thing, uh, she's not. By the way, Governor Cuomo and Governor uh, uh, Newsom are not saying different things in the federal government. They're not even well, criticizing the federal well, let government. Let me just make one. And they're applauding Trump. Yeah. Say again. Uh, they, they applauded Trump, actually. Yes. Governor Cuomo and Newsom, Dana Bash from CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike Miller. No, the. Uh, Trump was talking about the Democratic response to what he was doing. And do remember, David, I I know what you're saying about we were warned this would be a pandemic. I didn't believe it would be one. But the president was the one who closed the border first to China, and he was attacked. He was called a racist and a xenophobe. And it wasn't for weeks and weeks after that that they finally relented. Uh, the, The Democrats opened their mouths way too soon on this one and made an attack. And they're continuing the attack, which, see, that's my fear about weighing costs and benefits, that this is becoming political as opposed to good science and in terms of good public policy, that people are taking positions, orange man bad, and therefore anything he does is a problem. And I, I as an economist, again, you got to weigh costs and benefits. And that the woman from the governor from Michigan, what a silly thing to say that you would test people who are showing no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, that's a, a complete waste of, of funds and of test kits and the times of doctors and nurses and, and analysts who would figure out whether or not they ha- uh, that this is a positive or a negative. Genie so Ives, a, country, a lot of the Genie Ives, a, a lot of the criticism, uh, at least from the media this past week, has been that the president, you know, you know announced that he was going to, uh, you know, authorize the defense, uh, you know. Uh, pr- uh, procurement uh, measures, and then he didn't do it. Now, again, he volunteered that some of the companies that he was thinking about, they volunteered to do it. 
Do you have any knowledge at all about other companies that uh, may be volunteering to do things that have not received uh, the phone call from the president yet? Well, there is a company just here in Geneva, Illinois, that's part of Technology and Manufacturing Association, and they reported that that company was, um, you know, teed up to provide specialty parts that go into ventilators. So there's manufacturers that are absolutely doing this on their own. So why would you, first of all, nationalize any of the production methods, especially when the government we know is not the experts, and especially when you have voluntarily, you have companies coming forward voluntarily to do just that. That's exactly what we do as Americans. We come together to solve the need at that moment. And our corporations have been great actors in this. They have been really tremendous. Uh, everything from distilleries, you know, converting their operations into making hand sanitizers to, you know, automobile manufacturers making um, ventilators. We have had really great cooperation. And that's because Trump has been on the forefront of talking to them one-on-one and telling them what we need. So the government's not controlling this and they shouldn't, but they are talking to these folks and asking them to, to help. And, and they're coming forward and helping. And so that's a great, that's the way we want to do it in America. Is there anything that's happening, David, that you think is being well done? I need a 15 second answer. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But to my previous uh, point that What's I was What's the positive thing that's being done? Excuse me? What's the positive thing that's being done? Oh, some of the coordination with the states. I think that finally we're in this uh, uh, shutdown and social distancing, which is good. Dr. Felucci is an excellent uh, spokesperson providing answers to the American people. We'll be right back. Don't go away. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois, which is where we are doing our broadcast from this evening and probably for the foreseeable future because our studio with the Museum of Broadcast Communications has been shut down. We are following uh, the directive of this, the state of Illinois to uh, basically uh, shelter in place. And so uh, uh, a journalist is someone who is exempt from that. So uh, I am playing that role tonight as my guests are joining us from afar, at least uh, within the state of Illinois and in the Midwest. And we're going to take a moment to let each of them uh, take uh, take about 10 seconds to introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with David Masiotro. David, you're the contrarian tonight to tell us who you are and where you're from. Hi, David Masiotro. I'm coming from Northwest Indiana. I'm a political columnist with Salon, a music critic with No Depression, uh, author of a few books. The next one published in a will be published in October. Uh, I am somebody. Why Jesse Jackson matters. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Jeannie Ives also join us. Uh, for those listening around the country, Jeannie, tell us who you are. 
Hi, I'm Jeannie Ives. I'm a West Point graduate, mother of five children, and, I, and I'm a candidate for Congress for the Illinois 6th Congressional District. Thanks for having me on. And Mike Miller from DePaul University. Mike, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I uh, got a Ph.D. from the University of Pittsburgh after attending Slippery Rock State College. So I'm the pride of Slippery Rock, and I've been at DePaul since 1980, so I'm in my 40th year. Very good. I understand we have a caller on the line. Uh, uh, let's go to that caller right now. Uh, it is John from McHenry, Illinois. Go ahead, John. Good evening, all, and, uh, and Miss Ives, congratulations on your win this past week. Uh Wanted to Thank talk you. about the story came out late last week concerning the uh, but, uh, alleged insider trading of four, at least four United States senators, and it's come out lately that uh, a congresswoman from the West Coast has also been in uh, some congressional aides, and this looks to be a violation of the Stock Act. And obviously, after the immediate national emergency is over, I'm curious what you and the panel think should be done on to these four senators and the aides as far as did they unload stock with inside information from congressional briefings or not. I'll listen. Okay, Jeannie, go ahead. Well, we already put a statement out that uh, they should be immediately investigated and they should resign. Uh, I think that uh, there's enough evidence out there already to, to, to indicate that they actually were not uh, doing things ethically in these trades and uh, just the, it, it, capitalizing on a crisis like this is just the worst of insider dealing, self-dealing. And, you know, Illinoisans know what that looks like. We've seen it before. There's a number of people under investigation and indictment in this state. And uh, to see it from national leaders is just appalling. I, uh, I agree Mike. with your outcome if they're, in fact, guilty. But I, I saw an interview with, I think it's Loeffler from uh, North mm -hmm. Carolina. No, she's from Georgia. Uh, from Georgia. I knew it was in the South. Uh, she and her husband put all of their funds into a blind trust. And she was notified three weeks after the fact that uh, the trades had been made. So if, if I understand a blind trust properly, the person who was managing that file or that those uh, securities do not know who the person is that's uh, on the other end. They don't know that Loeffler is the person Okay, and so I think she may be clear, but the others, if they're guilty, they should uh, they should absolutely resign, and uh, they should do some time. Okay, Mike, thank you very much, John. We are, we're going to move on and get back to our uh, topic of this evening, which is uh, coronavirus and how the government is responding to it. And uh, uh, one one question that I have again, uh, I'm going to ask uh, you, Eugenie, for this. When, when the federal officials are up there, whether they're from FEMA or the vice president uh, uh, or even Dr. Burks, and they're, they're, they talk about the tests or they talk about thing, masks that are in the stockpile, should they have more exact numbers to share with the people as opposed to uh, a word the president uses a lot, which is a lot or terrific? I mean, do, they, do we need more specificity in the reporting from those that are on this press conference every day? Well, I, I think I always to put in the numbers when I'm talking about something specific, and I think it's important to give people assurance that things are happening and, and how that process is moving down or how the production level is increasing day to by day. I think that they should report that to some degree. Um, I think it's more important, though, for governors to assess where they are and what their needs are, because it's going to be vastly different from one state to another state. And so 
Um, I, you know, I think I've heard, look, they, we've got 55 million masks that are under production. We've got so many masks that are being converted from construction masks to being used for uh, hospital use. So I think that they have thrown out numbers. I just don't know that, I don't know that the vast amount of people watching care about the numbers as much as they care about being reassured that we are working on the topic. David, do you think that uh, this is the time uh, for the FDA to open up, to, to adjust their standards to some extent, to try some other things? This past week, uh, the president announced that there are two drugs that are used for other purposes uh, that he has asked the, uh, uh, the FDA to look into the possible use of these drugs for the treatment of coronavirus. There was a lot of flack that, that followed that because he had a, an aura of hope in his message, whereas Dr. Fauci was a bit more scientific in his response. But should the FDA be, be trying this uh, in a variety of areas? Yes. I, I don't think Trump should state it publicly because of the problems you just referenced and the impression it might create among the public. However, there's nothing wrong with trying it. Uh, you can do clinical trials under a more open arrangement and uh, hope for some positive results. But it's not something that should probably come out in a presser. Mike, do you think that the president may have uh, raised a level of hope? And uh, was that a good thing in your view on this matter of these two drugs? Well, we'll know in about three weeks if the hopes are dashed, then he made the made the wrong call. You know, but one thing we do here in the United States, if I re, uh, if I recall, um, many times drugs are studied overseas and we're unwilling to accept their findings. and We have to do our own studies. The whole reason this whole drug came up was because of a, a peer reviewed study in France that said out of 40 people who took the drug in a combination that all 40 of them recovered quickly within five days. So there's already been. No, some... I thought, I thought six of them died and only 36 survived. No, that's not what I heard. I had heard okay. that all 40 that, that he made. There's part of the problem. Exactly. What was it? But it, it's certainly a, a drug with very few side effects if taken for only a short period of time. And it seems to and me, this is the hydrochloroquine. Uh, if I were sick with it. And I, I, I guess I would say to my doctor, could you get me a, uh, Get me a dose. Let's try to take care of this. Jeannie, are you, know what's, are, are you, know you willing what's to roll the here? dice on this? I'm sorry, uh, Bruce? Yeah. You know what's interesting here is that we have uh, numerous biomedical facilities and, and, and pharmacy folks that are actually testing this on their own, which is, which is terrific. We've got lots of, uh, you know, 80% of the new drugs are developed by small companies that are looking for the next cure for anything. So we've got a lot of capacity to go out there and test and, and figure out the right solution here. And when we find a vaccine, we then can amp up the production about the, with that almost immediately, which is terrific. So um, I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty impressed actually with our scientific community and how quickly they've been doing this. And it's also really impressive that we've been able to uh, get rid of some of the regulations that in the past have prevented us from bringing new drugs to market very quickly. David, would you would you uh, would you echo that? Yes, generally, yes, I would. Uh, 
just to finish the point I wanted to make earlier, because it got cut off and I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression okay. that I was in an, in agreement with Governor Whitmer. Uh, I was trying to say that there's there's two poles of extremity and she represents one extreme with that statement that every resident should get tested, which I think we can all agree was wrong and short sighted and irresponsible. But also we know now and this is beyond dispute, that we did not have the testing capacity necessary at the onset of this, like we saw in South Korea and Taiwan and other countries. So uh, we can identify the truth in the middle that we should have more testing than we do, if not uh, running the lengths that Governor Whitmer proposed in her press statement. Mm -hmm. Hey, Bruce, on that note, on that note, within 24 hours, we were able to put together, at least uh, scientists were able to put together two new tests when we knew that testing was an issue. But I agree. I mean, this is something that needs to be analyzed long term is to why do we get, uh, why were we caught short with too few tests? And yet South Korea seemed to have that in the bank. I mean, I don't know. Do we just stockpile tests for potential things? I'm not sure how that all works. But uh, certainly, it's something for us to analyze um, uh, once we get a handle on all this. Well, I'm wondering also. I mean, obviously, I, I am I am one of 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 I think millions of people who cheer uh, Dr. Fauci. I think he's a great he's a great spokesman. But if indeed we had a problem in the past, I mean, he was there in the past. I mean, he's been around a long, long time. So, I mean, if we were devoid of of tests, uh, was it a and I, and I'm not pinning this on him, but was it a was it a lack of vision of what could happen? Because uh, you know, people said the same thing about 9/11. There's no way that people could have imagined that people were flying planes into buildings, and yet there were many people out there. Perhaps they weren't in government. It certainly wasn't Condoleezza Rice who couldn't comprehend how that could happen. Yes, and and I'll add another example: uh, Hurricane Katrina. The Army Corps of Engineers and certain Louisiana authorities were warning for years uh, through the latter years of the Clinton administration and then on through the Bush administration that those levees were in desperate need of repair. So we have this, I agree with uh, Ms. Ives, we need to get through the crisis, but once we're through it and we engage in analysis, we have to begin to question why we're consistently ill-prepared for catastrophe. On that subject, uh, on the subject of analysis, many of the Beyond the Beltway stations are now joined. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back at WCGO. That's in Evanston, Illinois. That's our flagship station uh, probably for the foreseeable future. And uh, it's good to be back here because many, many years ago, 
1973, this station and this very studio where I'm doing the show from is where my radio career began. I look around this place, wow. I think of all the, the fun shows okay. that I did uh, when I was you know, in my early 30s, and again, it all evolved uh, out of here. It's been an affiliate of ours uh, for the last several years. And again, given the situation of the shutdown at the museum in Chicago, we've come back to where uh, where we all began uh, with uh, at least the radio career uh, back at WCGO in Evanston, Illinois. It's nice to have you uh, with us this evening. Let's go to calls. Joy is listening to us from KXLY in Spokane, Washington. Go ahead, Joy. Uh, mine is just a more general comment that I feel that okay. the president is showing no leadership qualities whatsoever as he's performing as the war president that he has labeled himself with. Okay. Why not? Um, well, where do you see him I've failing? Li- well, I've, I've, I guess it's, and I don't know about behind the scenes. You know, I'm yeah. judging it from what I hear him coming from his mouth. I've watched yeah. his press conferences. The one today, um, he again made this big claim about how this drug is just going to save lives and it's going to be able to turn things around, you know, in days. And just that way of being tone deaf of what information and how carefully he has to use his words. I just, it just stuns me. Mike, uh, hang on just a second, Joy. Mike Miller wants to weigh in on what you've had to say. What's wrong with being hopeful? And, and again, he, this, the work that was done in France showed a very positive response to this particular drug. And, and, and I know that people want to attack him, but the attacks that they made when he closed the border to China, I, I I assume they regret what they said, you know, that he was xenophobic and a racist to close the border. Joy, back to you. Well before anyone Listen, else. He, he, Joy, ba- Joy, back to you, and then we'll go to David. Go ahead, Joy. Okay. Well, I, um, and I have a couple of other just comments, too, quick-like, but I think there is hopeful and there's irresponsible. I mean, it, the way, and Dr. Fauci was not there, but the way that he's talking about it, I am imagining everyone who has a sniffle getting on the phone and saying, can I have this drug to the doctors? Um, I just, I think that the information, it, it, it's how he presents it. The other couple of examples. All right, hang on, just, hang on, just, hang on, about, hang on, hang on, hang on okay. just a second. I want to go to David Messiotro. Okay. By the way. You're unique because we we are we have been opposite the president, so we don't know what this press conference did. You know, everyone that's out there listening, who listened to yeah. the president and is listening to this show now, you can all be instant, offer your instant analysis because we are at a disadvantage. And and I want to go to David Masiotro, who wants to agree with at least a portion of what you've said thus far. David. Well, the political scientist James Barber said that the president of the United States is the commander in chief. He's also the communicator in chief. And in a crisis, public communication is, to a certain extent, public policy. So when we see a reporter ask the president, what would you say to Americans who are scared? And he responds by saying, I'd say you're a terrible reporter. That in itself is a failure of leadership. 
He's, he's failing to provide comfort, calm, and confidence in a time of crisis. And I will say, so that this isn't entirely partisan, Mike Pence is not showcasing a similar failure. Mike Pence communicates as a leader. Trump cannot continue to bluster through these press conferences and then go on Twitter and contradict himself. He often contradicts himself on his Twitter feed. By the way, David, I want to follow up on that because uh, uh, earlier this week I was uh, on my Facebook uh, reading a, a variety of things that were coming in and also checked with some friends that are frequently on this program. And uh, uh, there was one uh, email trade or, or Facebook uh, post trial trail rather that uh, it was made up. I could tell it was made up of all people who I know hate Donald Trump, and they were all reacting to a press conference and everything else. And so I asked the question. I said, "I know everyone on this, uh, you know, on this trail hates Donald Trump, but what what record or what what grade would you give to Mike Pence? Because I know you hate Mike Pence too." And I was surprised. There was a unanimous response. About seven or eight people from professional Trump haters, all of whom said. Basically, what David just said, they gave a good grade to uh, to Mike Pence. They said he shouldn't spend so much time kissing the president's butt, and I totally agree with that. But as a communicator, they agreed with what David said. And uh, Joy, I want to come back to you and say, would you agree with that when you when you when you compare the president to the vice president? Well, I would, although I cannot stand <laughs> Vice President Pence. But yeah. yes. And you can't and stand Donald Trump really either, quick, right? Like, <laughs> well, there you go. Well, okay. but yeah. I think... I think it comes through. I, go ahead. <laughs> I he's very dangerous to our country. It's not just stylistic. But I think... so. But I don't want to get into that. But I have reasons that are not that I don't like I understand. the person. But I think he... Anyway... But the other two real quick comments that he, that really, again, leadership, I don't think he's a very smart man. And at times I think he's actually illiterate. But someone asked about stocks because we have had these four people who've been accused and they yes. asked, did you sell stocks? He went on, on and on how this presidency is costing him billions of dollars and he's done it all right, but no one gives him credit. No one thanks him when he said he wasn't going to take a salary. People who are live day to day, he's talking about losing billions as being president of the United States. That is so awful. And then another another way he's again being yeah. his optimistic self, saying, "Oh, we're going to have this huge comeback in our economy." Okay. And again, this may seem very small, but Joy. it just hit me. He said, "Oh, people are dying to go on cruises. People are dying to go back to restaurants." They Bad choice dying. of words. He has Bad not, choice of words. Oh, I think has, everybody would agree with that. That's a bad choice of words. Jeannie, I want to ask you a question and also get Mike's response. Is because the president has said on a number of times, you know, when this thing is over, Zoom, the stock market's going to go up. I mean, he used the Zoom, Zoom all the time again. Do you think he is making a mistake by uh, being as uh, defin- uh, being as uh, you know demonstrative as he is? about that the stock market absolutely is coming back. Shouldn't he pull that back a bit? Yeah, I think he should definitely pull back on that. I don't I don't know that you're going to have many of these businesses, especially even if they got immediate help within the next two weeks. There was probably some that were on the fringe of not making it anyway. 
in their chosen field, and they're not going to come back. Of course not, they're going to come back. There's employees already being laid off. I mean, tens of thousands of them are being laid off right now. They're not going to get rehired. Uh, some businesses, however, are trying to keep what they can going. When I talk to businesses, they want a line of credit. They want uh, to be able to maintain their employees that they know that because they have a thriving business already. But otherwise, my, I, don't agree, I don't agree with Trump that we're going to see a big V-shaped return here in the stock market. Do you agree with yeah, that, Mike? And Bruce? I'm going to get Mike's response. Oh, sorry. oh, if only I knew, Bruce, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> but um, there's no doubt in my mind that, say, a year or a year and a half from now, we will be back. And yes. uh, it'll all be recovered. Uh, you know what? Uh, three weeks, four weeks ago, we had a, an outstanding uh, labor report. When Trump says we had the strongest economy on record, he's he's correct. This is a complete surprise. And, folks, and a, there's not an economist who knows exactly what's going to happen. La- la- last word to everybody, and I need quick answers to it. Uh, with, with eight months to go before Election Day, would you all agree that at this moment, what's in Donald Trump's rearview mirror is really not going to have much effect on people, whether they vote for him or their haters, and they will vote against him. That really Donald Trump in the next eight months is going to be able to either firm up support or maybe change a few minds, and that that this crisis is all he has to worry about for re-election. Quick answer from everybody. David. Yes, and the election will be about mobilization and turnout more than recruitment. Jeannie Ives. I agree with David, and I would say if we have a strong enough recovery, and not full recovery, which I'm not predicting, that he will be reelected. Mike Miller. Uh, yes, but do remember that the, the memory of the uh, electorate is only about six months. Okay. So what happens on this, this one, is much more important. On this one, I think it's going to be a little bit longer. Mike Miller, Jeannie Ives, David Masiotra, thank you for being with us in hour number one of Beyond the Beltway. When we come back, Rosemary Gibson, she has a new book called China Rx. It's a great book. She'll be back with us at the top of the hour. Don't go away. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, Our broadcast a little bit different than in the past because of uh, the studio being shut down at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. But again, it gives us an opportunity to bring to you guests that uh, normally would not be available to us. And again, uh, one such guest is Rosemary Gibson. Uh, She is author of a new book called China Rx. She is one of the leading medical writers in the United States and, uh, uh, Ms. Gibson, we thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. One of the things that I want to get into a little bit later on is is the uh, the problem with the prescription drugs that we rely on in the United States. Way too many of them are made in China, according to your assessment. But my question is, right at the moment, uh, with everything that is being discussed and done by the federal government, how would you assess the current quality of American health care. Our health care system can do some amazing things for many people, but there is enormous opportunity to make it a whole lot better and a whole lot less expensive. We can have much better outcomes for a lot more people at much lower cost. In in this uh coronavirus uh, 
chaos that we are currently involved in, this tri- this ongoing disaster, uh, what do you think, if, if, if you could blow into the president's ear and give him a direction that he would then go out and implement, what would you like him to do differently than he's doing right now? I think communicating to the American people that if people get sick with coronavirus and have to go to the hospital, which fortunately is a very small percentage, that we have effective treatments to mitigate uh, this disease in the vast majority of, of patients. And that is good news. Is that something that you think that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burke should be maybe emphasizing a little bit more when it's their time to, to step before the podium? Because I'm not, I'm not getting that level of clarity that you've just articulated. Uh, they have far more expertise in you know, certain areas of vaccines and treatments, but that's just my uh, perception as a um, educated and informed layperson mm-hmm. that spent a lot of time working in the healthcare and writing about the healthcare sphere. The situation of the over-reliance on China, are we the only nation that you feel over-relies on China to help them in their medical needs? No, China is the dominant global supplier for every single country. Every country relies on China for the core chemicals to make thousands of the basic generic drugs that we take every day. How did how did that how did that happen? How did that happen, and and uh, over how many years did it take for them to be in this position of prominence worldwide? Uh, when I was writing the China RX book, there was this moment of awakening that when we opened up free trade with China in the year two thousand, that's when we began to see the landslide. And that landslide was our loss of production. We lost our last aspirin plant in 2002. We lost our last penicillin plant in 2004. We can't make vitamin C anymore. Our last plant closed around that same time. Within, again, just a few years of us opening up free trade with China. And that happened because Chinese government engaged in illegal trade practices. Mm -hmm. They dumped these products on the global market at below market prices, kept those prices low for several years until everybody had to fall out, go out of business. And once they got the dominant global market share, they increased prices. Who, again, people generally want to know, okay, uh, wh- where, where do we place the blame on this? It seems to me, based on what you're saying, is there's enough blame to go around. A lot of people were responsible for creating this situation. Is, is that a fair assessment of your comments? That is exactly right. This was under the rubric of people across the political spectrum, industry. Think about this. We allowed our manufacturing base to make generic drugs, antibiotics. Just think of antibiotics. There are virtually no antibiotics. We can't make them anymore in this country to treat infectious disease. It's really quite profound. 
Is there are there specific leaders in in Congress that uh, that led uh, the president at the time uh, down this road? I think it's across the board. It's how we've lost so much of our manufacturing base for everything from textiles, clothes to computers, highly sensitive telecommunications equipment, now vehicles, cars, auto parts, and now even our medicines. Do you believe that the that there are examples of American uh, healthcare uh, being adversely affected by either contamination or quality control by the Chinese? Absolutely. How widespread? Well, about twelve years ago, there was a fake substitute in a very important blood thinner. And that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of Americans. And the number's probably higher because it's really insidious when you, you know, put in a, a fake substitute in a drug. How do you actually show that someone became sicker because that, that was the cause of the, of the problem? More recently, I'm sure many of your listeners have had their blood pressure medicines recalled. And that happened when a single company in China, which... Again, these are companies that have huge global market share. That company uh, made its medicine with, had carcinogens in it. And the amount of carcinogen was more than 200 times the acceptable limit. And per pill that everybody was taking. And this this was going out to 23 different countries. So millions of Americans had to have their medicines recalled. What did the FDA, the government, or or the WHO, or any any agency that should have blown a whistle on this, what did they do when these things took place? Well, I'll say this much. If you or I had ever done that, put in a contaminant that was known to be inappropriate, we'd probably be in jail. But there's no accountability, no one goes to jail, there's no repercussions. Who the are FDA the, the companies the product who, from there, but that's that's about it. Who are the who are the companies that are involved? I mean, we look at the at the at the the ten leading pharmaceutical companies in the world. Uh, some of them are based in the United States, not all. When we come back, I want to talk about what role they have played in trying to identify this problem, and even more importantly, are they doing anything about it to rectify it? And in the sake, in the in, in the wake of the coronavirus, are the American people about to be woke up about this the danger that we have in our medicine cabinets? Back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. I'm Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway with Rosemary Gibson tonight, author of China RX. coa.org chronic health conditions the centers for disease control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand learn more at ncoa.org a few years ago steve faircow's lungs were failing i don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. 
I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back with Rosemary Gibson, author of the new book, uh, China Rx. And uh, Rosemary, uh, in in so far as the individual medication is concerned, it's not just one pill. It's the ingredients in the pill that come from China as well, correct? That's right. China has a global chokehold on the chemicals to make thousands of our generic drugs. Is there any other country in the world other than the United States that could pick up the slack if we wanted to uh, kick uh, China to the side on this matter? Oh, there, Europe is poised with a, a good indus- industrial base, but it too has suffered dramatically with the collapse of its own industry. But they're ready to pick up uh, should the situation get uh, more, more severe. But it'll take time. Do you believe that this crisis that every American is now going through, as this thing continues, as as your story uh, is heard by more and more people, and hopefully as members of Congress, certainly uh, some members of Congress are already on your case and supporting of what you're up to, but do you think that, that there's an opportunity to move the needle of public opinion on this and get Congress to bring some of this business back to the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. The public across the board is very concerned and outraged when they find out that so many of their medicines and the ingredients to make them are sourced in China. Mm-hmm. You know, many people realize that China doesn't have the same quality standards that we've been used to as a country here in the United States and certainly in Europe. If, if I'm with a, um, one of the major pharmaceutical companies, however, and I am buying my product from China, I'm providing them with a substantial amount of money for their product, uh, is there no ability from, an Amer- uh, from a pharmaceutical company's perspective to demand quality control at the site of the, of the production so there could be a greater uh, confidence in the quality of what they are producing while we're working on another uh, option for them? Well, first of all, the, the quote, big pharmaceutical companies, they abandon the generic drugs for the most part. Because the margins, the amount of profit they can make is so slim. And so we have a lot of other companies, names that all of us wouldn't recognize, that are making so many of our generic drugs. And increasingly, uh, in China, China now makes 10% of our generic drugs. Hmm. And they are bought here in the United States by companies where it's strictly on price. If it's a few cents a pound cheaper for a 55-gallon drum, that's what gets purchased. Where and Chinese companies are subsidized by their government, so they can sell it cheaper. What are the states in the United States where some pharmaceutical manufacturing is still done? It used to be New Jersey, as I recall. Is that is that still a significant state? The state... Uh, there are states. There are many states where there's some pharmaceutical manufacturing, and I think it's helpful to distinguish between the brand name drugs, which are 10% of the drugs we take, hmm. and that's where there might be more manufacturing. For our generic drugs, which are 90% of the medicines we take, 
by companies that we increasingly don't know the names of, that is what is collapsing here in this country. There are empty plants all over. I've been getting calls recently from companies saying, we could start our production here. We have this vacant plant. What can we do? Are, are those plants that you just described, are those plants the type of plants that the president should be calling to try to ramp up production of medication during this period of time when he has the authority of the Defense Procurement Act? Is this something that, that a concrete thing that he can do? Or, and if so, how long would it take? There are some companies that are ready to start production once the federal government flips the switch, provides them with money that we are going to buy your product. Now, we've heard a lot more about masks, gowns, ventilators. And by the way, the story on ventilators, Mm -hmm. the reason we have a shortage is because China stopped shipping the circuit boards. But back to medicines, what we have to build up is the chemical manufacturing, those core chemicals. And we have brilliant uh, pharmaceutical engineers in this country who can actually make them here. So we can be 100% independent from China. That's what we should be doing. And they're ready to go. How can, where does one find a, a list of those companies? And most importantly, for those listening to this broadcast this evening all over the world on the internet, uh, Rosemary, uh, what can the average person do to apply the pressure on which members of Congress or the president to get them to act on this? Because it seems to me that that uh, that what you're talking about is it's an important part of solving this problem, short-term and possibly long-term. That's correct. If we take the, the medicines that are needed to treat people who are hospitalized with coronavirus, basic bread-and-butter generic medicines, mm-hmm. 90% of the ingredients for them are sourced in China. So what people can do, call up their member of Congress, send an email saying, we want our medicine-making back in the United States with our basic generic drugs. The second thing people can do, follow me on Twitter at Rosemary100, which is fact-based, and people can be informed about this issue. And as a country, we can fix it. Read the book China Rx. Share it with your family and friends. Give it to your member of Congress, to your local elected officials. Yeah, it's again, I, I cannot stress enough that this is we're at the, you know, uh, especially a lot of us are are sort of trapped in our homes now, washing our hands, you know, 25 times a day. Uh, we're probably talking back to the TV because we'd like to do more. This this is a concrete thing that we can do to deal with one very important part of this, which is the medical part, and that is not only to solve some problems we have now about masks and ventilators, but also down the road so we are not so reliant on the Chinese to make the drugs that save our lives. I mean, the, the president last week uh, talked about and got some into some controversy when he recommended uh, hydrochloroquine, and uh, I assume that that's also made in China? Do we know where that's made, uh, Rosemary? Uh, I have a question out to those who make the product yeah. and with where does the starting material come from, and I hope to hear back from them tomorrow. Okay. But we can, we can make that here. It might okay. be faster and cheaper to uh, buy it from somewhere else. Right. 
But this is where we need our supply chain to be really transparent. Right. And let me say also. And by the way, I'm that I'm that I'm that chlor- uh, hydrochloroquine that also involves uh, erythromycin or, or or what people are familiar with an antibiotic called a, a Z-pack. So you need right. both, right? Where are the Z-packs made? Well, uh, according to reports, the uh, core material to make that antibiotic is ironically in Wuhan, China. Wow. So, and what we're talking about here are the antibiotics that you give to your kids for ear infections, you know, in the best of times, mm-hmm. for bronchitis, for pneumonia, for sepsis, for, you know, last resort antibiotics for C. difficile or MRSA. This is, this is what we've allowed to leave our shores. We have to bring it back let's, for under normal times as well as in times like this. Let's go to Dave from Hampshire, Illinois. He wants to question you. Go ahead. You're on the air with Rosemary Gibson. Hi. Yes, I got a question. I read an article by Dr. David L. He's from the New York Times, or it was in the New York Times. He wrote an opinion piece, and he is the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. And he says we're going about this all the wrong way. He says what we should do is lock down the elderly and those who have health conditions. Let the rest of the people who are healthy, the 80% who get, you know, small or, or not very big symptoms, to go out there, live their lives, get the disease, and build up herd immunity. Now, I know there's other people saying we shouldn't do that, but I'm just wondering what you think and what the guests think about doing that. If, let's if, let if uh, let's Rosemary, uh, let Rosemary answer that. I will say I'm not an expert on how to prevent the transmission or mitigate the, the, uh, a disease such as this. So I would leave that to the experts on what we should be doing. My focus has been on ensuring we have our own capacity as a country to make our own medicines. Mm-hmm. So we have them when we need them. Did you say right rounding now, up it, the senior it, citizens, David? Is that what you said? Well, well, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is well, not round them up. I mean, I don't know if that's what you said, but we are, we are practicing lockdown right now right. for everybody. What right. this doctor is saying is don't lock down everybody, just lock down those uh, 20% that, have, that are elderly or have health conditions. Keep social distancing for them. Let the healthy people go about their lives and get the coronavirus, build up an immunity, and that immunity will protect, he says, 66% of the population. Once they get it and they build an immunity, mm-hmm. will protect the other ones who are vulnerable. He says it's called herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly is, is quite controversial. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. We have actually, we don't have any time for uh, any more uh, questions. Uh, but again, I want to thank you very much, David, uh, for your call. And also, uh, special thanks to uh, Rosemary Gibson. Uh, she is a, one of the leading uh, medical writers in the United States. She's received many, many awards. She's also a senior advisor uh, to the Hastings Center. And uh, we thank her very much. She is author of the book, uh, China Rx. China Rx. And if you want the ammunition to fight a battle with your member of Congress so that we are not so reliant on the Chinese, this is a good primer for you to read 
so you've got facts and figures to share with your lawmaker to see if we can make a change. It's something you can do as we're all sitting home, we're all uh, you know locked down in, in, in various states and that are listening to this broadcast this evening. Something to do while you're locked down. Again, remember the book China Rx. Our thanks to Rosemary Gibson for joining us tonight. I'm Bruce Hi, Dumont. This is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much, actually, in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, for those listening around the country, Evanston, Illinois is just uh, north. It's the first uh, suburb north of Chicago. It is home to Northwestern University. Those are uh, things that you probably remember uh, if you've ever been to Chicago. And again, that's where we are. And again, we're in the studios of WCGO. And again, uh, we hope you enjoyed our interview with uh, Rosemary Gibson. And uh, we are now going to be joined by our next panel of experts and uh, they are Eric Cohn and Judith Sherwin and Michael Golden. And uh, I'm going to begin with you, Eric Cohn, because you are the card-carrying libertarian on the broadcast this evening. With all this discussion of federal bailout and federal help, uh, a lot of people are, don't like the word bailout, but uh, certainly federal assistance. Uh, as a libertarian, where do you come down on, on what role government has to uh, deal with the current crisis the, the country faces? Well, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. So I think there is a role for government. And I think there is an obvious role for government in providing relief in extraordinary circumstances like we are seeing right now. So I would say, you know, yes, there's absolutely a role here. Although I do want to acknowledge that I think it's fascinating. We started this decade with the Tea Party, and we're likely going to end it with a Republican president, Republican Senate, and Democrat House cutting checks to pretty much every American. It's something remarkable to me. Michael Golden, do you see it as remarkable? You're the, you're the, you're the closest thing to a flaming liberal we have on at the moment. <laughs> uh, you like saying that, don't you? Well, Michael, uh, it's true. It's true. At the moment, you're the closest thing to a flaming liberal we have on the show. Okay. Um, I, I think it's a, I think, look, this is, it's a shame that they're going to have to put this enormous Go ahead. Yeah, we can. Yeah, it's it's a shame they're going to have to put this enormous package into play and add to an already jacked up national debt and deficit after the last few years. But I'm not I'm not sure how you get around it if we're on the verge of uh, a recession turning into a depression. I mean, it's a little early to say that. That's what's tricky about this. And as you know, I wrote a book about the dysfunction in Congress. This is one of the hardest things they have to do because they have to do it quickly. There's 535 representatives, each each representing a state or 700,000 people. So to figure out how to put 
the right amount of money in the right person, the right small business, the right medium-sized business's hands is incredibly difficult, even under the best. Of well, they haven't. They certainly didn't do it today. I mean, it was a 47-47 tie. Uh, Judy Sherwin also joins us, probably the closest thing to a card-carrying conservative Republican joins us. She is an attorney, also teaches at Loyola University in Chicago. Judy, what, what's your thoughts on what's going on? Well, I mean, obviously, it's an extraordinary situation. Um, I think it's very important to try to get these monies into the right hands. Uh, you have a lot of people who are going to be hurting very badly in the short term. People who aren't going to be able to, to you know, go out and buy food. I mean, I, I think the president said it the other day. These are people who were kind of doing pretty well four weeks ago. And all of a sudden, they've been laid off from work. They don't have any money coming in. Somebody's got to help them, and they got to help them now. I think what happened this afternoon in the Congress is, is astounding. It's just astonishing to me that they couldn't get themselves together to get this package moving forward. It's absolutely astonishing to me. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I hope they can get it together by tomorrow. Um, but I, I'm not so sure about that because the last I heard was uh, um, the speaker has her own package that she wants to start in the House and, and move through the House and then bring that to the Senate. So I, I don't know where this is going. I don't know that these people understand what an emergency is and that they need to stop, um, you know, trying to put every political idea they ever thought of in their life in this bill that Just needs to bring relief to Americans now. How, how would you bring it to a head, uh, Eric? What's... From a libertarian perspective, how do you how do you bring these two sides? You know, the Democrats are saying that too much of the bailouts going to the the, the corporations and the wealthy, and uh, uh, you know they're trying to protect uh, the middle class as they define it. I think the easiest thing to do would be to set aside the corporate relief part of it as a separate piece of legislation and deal with the direct relief to Americans who need it as a singular piece of legislation. And I, you know. <laughs> uncharacteristic of me as, I guess, your card-carrying libertarian. I'm not even in favor of means testing this. I think that is probably the easiest and most efficient way to get this thing done and out as quickly as possible. Although I think based off something Michael said, so someone, me, someone, is- someone who has a job whose uh, a flow of, of income has not been stopped, you think they should get a check as well? Because the only way you're going to means test this, Bruce, is basing it off of 2018 or if they filed already 2019 tax right. returns. If you made a hundred grand in January of 2018 and you haven't made a dollar since, how well are you doing? Well, you may be uh, graduated out of the current uh, process based on how much you made early in 2018. But here's where I need to make the point that we had, what, 11 years of uninterrupted growth. This is why you don't rack up trillions of dollars of debt every year in in periods of good times, because when you get to bad times like this and you do need to spend money, when you're going to add $2 trillion to the federal uh, debt, this is where you create massive problems. We should have been more responsible in the years prior. This goes on Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and the previous Congresses. Mike Golden, do you agree with that? Does it blame it to go around with everybody? I do. I do. And you know, the, you know, the book I wrote is, is, is nonpartisan. This is where that book is, is, by the way, that book is called unlock Congress. (laughs) And we're showing a picture of it right now for people that want to buy it. 
Go ahead. Uh, you're, you're such a gentleman. Thanks. It, it, you know, this is, it, it was five years ago that that book was published. And, you know, most people don't pay attention to this stuff because it's not exciting. It's not that interesting, Congress. Uh, but right now you're seeing in real time it play out how difficult this is. And I agree. I'm not sure if it was Judith or, or Eric, but I agree that they have to get the money into people's pockets who need it first. And then figure out the rest of it. I'm not sure you can do it all in one enormous bill in less than a week. Uh, and I think that's what they're wrangling with is, is trying to figure out, well, you know, how do we not overshoot the mark on all these other folks that aren't necessarily, you know, laid on a rent check this week. But, but this is an incredibly difficult thing. And I do agree to your question, Bruce. Uh, this is years and years of heaping debt. Uh, on the country, even even presidents who tried to, to to dial it back a bit, the federal budget's massive, and it's it's not really pri- it's not really priority based. It's not efficient. Judy, I want to get your reaction and everyone's reaction to the guest that we just had on, uh, Rosemary Gibson, who talked about how we are literally uh, we're 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 being held hostage, uh, as is the world, uh, to the pharmaceutical industry in China. Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, in preparation for coming on tonight, you sent us uh, a link to uh, information about her, and I got a chance to read the first couple of chapters of her book. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it is horrifying to think that our medicines can be held hostage by any other country, all right, particularly by a country that does not necessarily wish us well. And, I mean, you don't need to have a rock fall on your head to realize that. I think that um, the problem with, with, um, with some of what she has to say is there's been a great movement in this country for medicine to be cheaper, for medicines to be generic. And the generic medicines, as she very succinctly po- uh, points out, are medicines that are made, uh, the ingredients come from China. Some of them come from India, but a lot of the Indian ingredients come from China. And if we take these even um, generic medicines back and make them in the United States, the price is going to go up. And and so people are going to be unhappy with the price going up. But at the end of the let me, day... Let me, just, let me just interject there, and I want to get everybody's reaction to this. Is this one of those things, as you just said, the price may go up, if we have control of our pharmaceuticals, like like we're increasing our control of our oil, we're not we're we're less uh, uh, reliant on um, Middle Eastern oil than we were a decade ago. Is is this part of the lesson that has to be taught by Republicans and Democrats when they go back to the American people and say, "Listen, this is what we're doing together to stop our reliance on foreign pharmaceuticals." Would the American people buy that? Uh, Michael, and is, is, is this a good issue? Is this a good bipartisan issue? Take back our pharmaceutical leadership. Yeah, this, look, this is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, absolutely, Bruce. Absolutely. And this is, if you want, if people want to understand just how important campaign finance is and the way that our, our politicians, whether they know it or not, are bought, bought and sold by contributions, look no further than the pharmaceutical industry. It is the number one lobbying industry by, new, by, by dollar figure by far. And that's a, that's a big reason for why what you're seeing what you're seeing right now. But their stockholders are looking to make uh, maximum profits. A- absolutely. Well, how that's do you change the, that? How do you I'm change talking about, 
but I'm talking about the political system. The, the, those shareholders and those companies are subject to the laws that Congress passes or doesn't pass. And for so many years, they have not they have not cracked down on the look. Even even Barack Obama, when he wanted to try to pass uh, the Affordable Care Act, the first thing he did was cut a deal with the pharmaceutical industry in the back room. It's acknowledged they could not even get started if they hadn't done that first. Eric Cohn. As much as my heart goes pitter-patter with Michael basically evoking P.J. O'Rourke here, that as long as buying and selling is controlled by legislation, the first thing to be bought and sold will be legislators. I think he's right about that. The reason that these supply chains moved to China is because it was cheaper and more efficient. Now, we can tell the American people, yes, it's just going to be more expensive, but that's not fully honest. We can also do things, reduce the amount of regulation, the obstacles, the things that make things artificially expensive to make in the United States. There's a package of reforms that can be put through there to make uh, it more financially logical for these companies to repatriate their supply chains. When we come back, I want to ask everybody to respond to the question... How long will your friends and neighbors, the American people living in states that are on some form of lockdown at the moment, how long are they going to accept this new normal in their lives? Days, weeks, months? Back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. And again, a reminder in case you just tuned in the broadcast, uh, uh, the Museum of Broadcast Communications has been shut down like uh, virtually everything else in the city of Chicago. And so uh, it will be quite a while before we get back into our studios. And so uh, we've gone to our flagship in Chicago, WCGO in Evanston, Illinois, just outside the city limits. And uh, we have returned to where my broadcast career began many, many years ago. And we're doing our program this evening with no in-studio guests. However, we've got great people on the line, and uh, also we had a great interview just a few moments ago with the great author, uh, uh, Rosemary Gibson, author of a new book called China Rx. My question at the beginning of the broadcast, which I will re-ask to this August panel, and that is, um, how long do you think your friends and neighbors will be patient and go along with the uh, shelter-in-place dictate that uh, uh, Governor uh, Pritzker in Illinois uh, sent to everyone listening in Illinois. And again, there are several other states, uh, Connecticut and New Jersey and New York and California, that are also living under a, sick, a similar dictate from their governor. How long are we going to be patient, Michael? As long as it takes. I don't see what's so complicated about it. I mean, it's terrible that people aren't able to go to work right now, and especially folks that are paycheck to paycheck. It's terrible. 
But if you look at China and especially Italy, if you look right now, yeah. they, they're, they're still regretting the fact that they're not cracking down hard enough and the numbers are jacked up. Yeah. It's a small price to pay to just follow logic and math. That's what I think. Judith, your response. Well, you know, we're right now in the in the first 15-day period, the federal um, uh, idea about staying home. And, um, and, of course, now we have the lockdown from Governor Pritzker. I think people are going to go along with this for about a month. And I, and I think that they will be encouraged to go along with it farther if they see that it's having the effect. The reason we're all social distancing from each other is so that we don't end up like Italy. We don't end up with this curve shooting up and with, with you know, the need for more hospital beds than we can possibly put out and more ventilators and, and all of our healthcare people getting sick and having the healthcare system collapsed. I think one of the lessons we're going to learn from all of this is, is kind of how close we are to a catastrophe when something like this hits, and this is not going to be the first one, I think. Actually, it's not the first one, and it's not going to be the last one. So I think people certainly are going to be okay for a month, even the ones who, who are in a situation where living from paycheck to paycheck, hopefully we'll get some government assistance so they'll be able to go a little longer. But I think as people start to see this curve flattening, I think this will be will be encouraging. But... Um, Myself, I don't see it going much past the summer. I think if we oh. get to June first and we're still hanging out at home, we're going to have a lot of a lot oh, of wow. cracks in the dike. Okay, uh, Eric Cohn, your response. Uh, it certainly can't go on for an indeterminate period of time. I was listening to an interview recently with a Dr. Michelle Gelfand. It was a new book out about tight and loose cultures. You have tight cultures in places like South Korea and Japan, where if they're told to stay home for an indeterminate period of time, they're likely to obey. Something about the American characteristic is different, however, and we're not going to do that. After a certain period of time, we're going to start going outside and talking to our neighbors now, I have two children, nine and six, and we're now essentially homeschooling them. And if you want to know how that's going, uh, so far, two students have been fi- uh, suspended for fighting and one teacher's <laughs> been fired for drinking on the job. So I don't think people are going to tolerate this for an incredibly extended period of time. And we need to start asking the question at some point, yes, there's a public health concern and the need to shelter in place can be, I think, obvious. But at some point, the damage we're doing to the economy has real consequences as well. And we need to at least entertain the conversation about the trade-offs there rather than pretending that it doesn't exist. Um, should the president and the, and the uh, coronavirus task force, should they be uh, telling the American people what is likely to be next? Or are some of the things that might be next are too draconian for the people to accept them? I'll start with you, uh, Eric. I don't think there's a good answer to that question, because if they're telling them the draconian things are coming, again, go back to my point about the American characteristic, people are not likely to tolerate that kind of thing. Even leaks, there's a Rolling Stone article out today or yesterday that the DOJ is apparently considering suspension of certain constitutional rights. Um, I, I don't know how to put this any more delicately than hell no to that. I don't think that's going to fly with people. So if they're going to be honest about draconian things coming, that's going to create a problem. And if they lie about draconian things coming, that is also going to be a problem. I don't know that there's a good answer there. Michael Golden. You know, I, I think that Mike Pence 
and um, and Gavin Newsom and 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 Andrew Cuomo have, have put a clinic on in terms of good communication. I don't agree with Vice President Pence's politics, uh, and it's it's difficult to watch him genuflect like all these people to the president. But he has been reasoned, and and the, these those three I think are explaining this very well, so that you're ready for the next steps, be they drastic or draconian. The, the more information, the more truth I think that people get, the more comfortable they feel. I think that's one of the reasons the markets kept plummeting. The markets want some stability, some certainty, even if it's certainty about uncertainty. And and so I, I think that's the most important thing in terms of preparing people uh, for, for any next steps. One last question to you, Judith. Uh, what should the president be doing that he isn't doing thus far to calm the waters? Well, I, is that to answer right now? Yep. Oh, because I heard the music. Ten uh, seconds. Oh. <laughs> okay, ten <laughs> seconds. What should he do? Uh, I think he's doing pretty much what he needs to do. He needs to get on television every day, try to give people hope, try to give his team the ability to get out there and talk about the facts uh, that Michael thinks are so important, which I think they are as well. And um, I think he needs to continue along that line. I mean, okay. he's not going to have a personality change all of a sudden. And, and if that's what you want him to have, that's not going to happen. Your 10 okay. seconds are up. I don't think anybody is expecting a personality change. I want to thank <laughs> Michael Golden, who's author of the book Unlock Congress. Judith Sherwin has joined us. She is a conservative lawyer from Chicago. Eric Cohn is a talk show host for WYND. Thank you all for being with us. Our thanks to Fritz Goldman, who helped make this program possible, and just the nonstop work of Andrew Marshall, uh, who's been our producer, our board operator, and everything else. The water, got the water tonight, everything. We got, he got it all done for us. I'm Bruce Dumont. Until next week at the same time, good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. But I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. 
I'm a veteran. My victory is going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.